How's everyone tonight? Good? Awesome. It's good to be here. As, as Pastor Osmond said, my name is Pastor Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and I'm just excited to open the scriptures to us tonight as we continue in our series, Small Book, Big Idea, looking at 1 John. And so let me just recap a little bit before we move into something uh, new today. In 1 John 1 to 2, verses 1 to 2, we read this. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so last week, we talked about sin, and it's okay to talk about sin in church, because sin is serious, and sin matters to God, amen? And so we're allowed to talk about it. Sin is lawlessness. It's like this refusal to submit to God. It's a way of becoming insubordinate towards God and His desires. Uh, last week, we learned four things about sin. We learned that sin is lawlessness, that sin is universal, uh, that sin is serious, and that there is forgiveness for sin. Praise Jesus. And so we learned about sin. Sin's lawlessness. It's, it's insubordination. Um, sin's universal. It's something that we all face and that we all collectively have as a problem. Um, it's serious because it costs Jesus his life, but what we can rejoice in tonight is that there is forgiveness for sin, amen? And so that's exciting, and tonight I want to continue in this portion in 1 John chapter 2, so we're going to look at verses 3 to 6 tonight, but before we go there and do that, allow me to give us something to ponder from the world of literature, okay? In 1860, a French man named Victor Hugo wrote an epic story. One that scholars have regarded as a major force in the social justice discussion. Perhaps as a student, you feared reading it because it was a 1,400-page novel depending on what version of the book you were given. Okay? But uh, perhaps it's something that you've enjoyed. Perhaps it's something that you, you, you had to do as a book report or you had to read in school. But this story was called Lay. Miserable. Okay, I'm going to say that once because I said it wrong, okay? It's going to be lay Miz for the rest of the discussion here tonight, okay? But this story centers around this guy named Jean Valjean, and he's a convict who spent 19 years in jail for stealing. And at the beginning of the story, we meet him, and he's just been released from prison after spending 19 years there. And we find him spending the night at the home of an elderly bishop or at the church. And the bishop has just been excessively kind to him, even knowing that he's a recently released convict. But despite the bishop's kindness, Jean Valjean gets up in the middle of the night, and he almost decides if he's going to kill the bishop or not, and he decides not to. But instead, he runs away from the bishop's house with a bag full of silver that belonged to the bishop. And the next morning, the bishop woke up, he's having breakfast, and all of a sudden there's a loud knock at the door, and at the door are the police with Jean Valjean, and they caught him. And they caught him with the bag of silver. And they got him by the neck, and at this point he's likely thinking, oh my goodness, I've just been released 
after spending 19 years in jail, they caught him red-handed. He's downcast at this point because he knows he's been caught. And in his mind, he knows he's going back to prison. And this will be many years for him of hard time and hard labor. But then the bishop does something that he doesn't expect. And in front of the policeman, he says to Valjean, he says, I'm delighted to see you again today. Had you forgotten that I also gave you the silver candlesticks as well? You forgot to take them with you. And with that, Valjean was set free again. And he's not going back to prison. And not only is he not going back to prison, but he's being freed with a, with a sack full of silver, silver that he stole, and now this bishop is even giving more silver to him that he didn't deserve. And so it shakes him. And it shakes him to the core. And he's radically changed. Literally, he changes everything. He changes his name, his identity. He moves to a different town. He starts a factory. I think it was a button factory, if I'm not mistaken. And he's tremendously successful. And he uses all the money that was given to him from the silver to start this factory. And hundreds of people in the town work at the factory. And the town flourishes because Jean Valjean became a changed person. And he's a changed person because he has encountered excessive forgiveness and excessive generosity. Again, he encountered excessive forgiveness <clears throat> and excessive generosity. And so we look at 1 John chapter 2, and especially verses 1 and 2, and we are hearing some of those themes at the, at the beginning of this chapter. And we know that John's writing to an audience who have started to hear some new teaching that's actually straying away from what the gospel message is. And the original audience was starting to hear a message that it wasn't so much about what you did with your bodies and with your life, with your actions, but that it was more about what you knew and even more about what you believed. Because in this false teaching that was going around, knowledge and special revelation knowledge was the most important thing. We've already talked about the Gnostic influence here that was creeping in on the church. And knowledge was the most important thing to these people. It's all about special knowledge. It's all about the revelation that you can have. And they separated this from everything else, even separated it from how they lived. And so verses 1 to 2 mentions the word sin four times. Now, I don't know about your church background, or if you have any church background. Maybe you grew up in a church where all they ever talked about was sin, 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 sin. And so you hear talk about sin, and you start to tune out because, you know, you just associate that with tough memories. Or maybe this, this, this whole church thing's new to you, and you, you kind of think to yourself, well, why do we talk about sin? What makes it so important? Why is it such a big deal? Well, I think John is going to address sin here, and he's not going to be talking simply about a list of do's and don'ts, but he's actually going to be using very relational language as he discusses these next few verses. And so let's look at verses 3 to 6 in 1 John chapter 2. We're going to see the word commandments mentioned several times here, but always in the context of relationship. So let's read. 
The text says, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. And this is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. And so John is speaking here about a disconnect sometimes that occurs between what we say and what we do. How many of you have had experience with this before? Anyone? This disconnect between what we say and what we do. You see, it's one thing to say something we believe or something that we're passionate about, but it's quite another thing to back it up with our actions. You know, the old adage, actions speak louder than words, kind of comes to mind here. It's applicable. And the truth is, is that it's one thing to know about God, but it's an entirely different thing altogether to know God. There's a big difference between knowing about God and actually getting to know God. And I wonder if sometimes in our culture we've settled for simply knowledge or being educated about God, almost making that sort of an end in itself. And while that's still very important and good doctrine and good theology is very important, but perhaps on its own, it's not all that God had in mind for us. When he wants us to walk with him, when he wants us to carry out his purposes in the world that we live in. I've heard it said before that in our culture, we're probably educated beyond our level of obedience. We could be educated beyond our level of obedience. And many of us know a lot about the scriptures and we can argue and we can debate these things and yet living them out is a whole different story. And perhaps we haven't emphasized that or put enough focus on that. And that's where the focus goes in 1 John chapter 2 verses 3 to 6, what we're looking at tonight. And so this text tells us that we know we have come to know Jesus if we keep his commands. And so some of you will ask that question, well, what commands are you talking about? Well, we know we're in tune with Jesus when we keep his commands. We need to remember that 1 John, the book, is intimately connected with John, the gospel. And so if we want to look at some of the commands of Jesus, we could just look over to the gospel of John. And in chapter 13, we read this. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. In John 15, 17, it says this, this is my command, love each other. And so in our text today, part of obeying his commands is to love one another. Jesus says to love, and if you don't love Jesus, the, sorry, the book of John says that you are a liar. But if you do something about it, if you do something about keeping God's commands, then God's love is made complete in you, the scriptures say. Now that word complete is interesting that we read here. That's the reason why I put it on the screen in red. That word complete is from the Greek word uh, teleos. And teleos literally means, translated, reaching a goal, lacking nothing. 
fully developed. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 28, we read that word again. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully teleos, mature, in other words, in Christ. And so this word teleos is something that we need to pay attention to here. We proclaim him so that we may present everyone fully mature, teleos, in Christ. And to be fully mature in Christ, to be teleos means that we've completed something, that we're carrying something out the way it's supposed to be done. You see, God doesn't just want us to live at the place where we start, but he's always got something new for us each day. How many of you know that, right? He's always working on us. We are all a work in progress. He's always bringing us to completion, to teleos, mature in love in him. Let me illustrate from life here on this, okay? I like to play golf, okay? And in that picture, I'm on the golf course, and I'm probably looking for my golf ball, okay? It's not that cool airplane in the sky. I thought it was. I was convinced it was that line in the sky, but I don't think it is, you know, on second or third thought, right? But I like to play golf. I like to practice. I played probably 15 rounds this year. Uh, most summers I get in about close to 30. I like it. I enjoy it. But you want me to let you in on something about my golf game? My golf game, unfortunately, is not teleos, okay? <laughs> it's unfortunately not complete. It's not fully developed. It's not mature. I'm still lacking. I still need lessons. I still need practice. I still need to work on things. If you came up with me, you'd probably tell me, Pastor, you just need to change your whole swing, right? But whatever, okay? It's not fully where it needs to be. And the scriptures are instructing us that we are to be teleos, mature in Christ. We're not supposed to stay in kindergarten forever in this thing, if I could say it like that. But God is always growing us. He's always maturing us. He's always continuing his completion in us and in our lives. You see, when you love like Jesus commands you to, when you love others and when you seek to avoid sin, God's love is made teleos in you, mature in you. Love is made complete in them, verse 5 says. And almost as a direct warning, the scriptures tell us this, that those who say, I know him, but don't love, scripture says that they are liars. And that the truth isn't in them. Welcome to church this evening. That's a strong and direct teaching, isn't it? And when someone says that they believe in Jesus, that they walk in him, and they make claims about their faith, but they don't love, they have no love in their actions, and in the way that they treat others, there's a disconnect, and there's a problem in that picture, is what the scriptures are telling us tonight. And throughout church history, we have a couple words that I believe are helpful for us to look at. And I think both of them are important when we look at this divide between what we say and what we do. Now, the first word I want to mention to us is this word orthodoxy. How many of you are familiar with the word orthodoxy? You've heard that before? So orthodoxy is simply correct thinking or beliefs. Often when we talk about theology and studying the scriptures, we want to have good and proper orthodoxy, correct beliefs, correct thinking. 
Now the second word is just like it, and that's the word orthopraxy. How many of you are familiar with this term? Anyone? A couple of you are. Yeah, awesome. And orthopraxy is correct actions or practice. Now, what I find often when I ask people about these two words is more people often have heard the term orthodoxy before than perhaps they've ever heard about orthopraxy. And so there's belief and there's thinking, but there's also action. There's practice. There's love, as Jesus says. And John, the writer of this letter, says, if somebody has one without the other, then it doesn't mean anything. And it loses its meaning. And that's not where they're supposed to be living. Let me illustrate to you sometimes this divide between what we think and what we do. Uh, Pastor Yasmin and I are going to be starting an uh, online venue soon called Unedited. And it's a way for us to reach out to those who don't know Jesus. But part of this is for us to also explore our city and celebrate our city. And she came to me once joking about skydiving. And maybe we should go skydiving. Actually, I don't think she was joking. I think she was actually quite serious about it. And uh, I'll tell you this, okay? While I believe that skydiving is safe, I believe it is, and if you're trained and prepared, I encourage you to do it, I believe it's a safe activity and probably not as crazy as it looks in the sense once you're fully trained. Having said that, okay, I'm never going to put on a parachute, okay? And I'm never going to jump out of a plane, all right? Anyone who knows anything about me knows that I'm scared of heights a little bit, actually quite a bit, okay? It's tough enough for me to go up to that second level at the Sask place, okay, at the arena, okay? It, I, even though I know it's safe up there, even I, I know it's a safe structure, it's tough enough for me to walk up there, let alone jump out of a plane and do something crazy like that. And so there's this part of me that could probably say, well, yeah, go ahead and do it. It's safe. You're trained. You know what you're doing? It'll be fine. I'm probably never going to do it myself, right? And it's easy, I think, sometimes to talk about and make claims about things. But it's quite another sometimes to actually follow through in action. <laughs> and uh, put that to the test, if you will. You see, most of us have heard the term orthodoxy before. But I bet you a lot of us have heard it and never heard a thing about orthopraxy in the same conversation. And when people talked about orthodoxy, and only orthodoxy, only on what you believe and what you think, without orthopraxy, this is a discussion that I think the writer of 1 John would not be able to fathom. He'd have been like, huh? What? What do you mean it only matters what you know or what you believe? What do you mean you can divorce that from your actions and what you do. You know, how are these separate and not one in the same? And to think that we're just going to talk about beliefs and that that's good enough and that that's an end in and of itself, not about how you actually live in this world as a Christian, but let's just talk about what you think and believe. For the writer, for John, he would have been like, huh? That makes no sense. That doesn't add up. 
And the reason why there is this paragraph that we read tonight, and the passion and the heat behind it, is that the writer is saying, any time you divorce the two, and you only talk about the one, what you believe, without incorporating it into how you live, namely in love, that is a problem that needs to be addressed. Are you with me? And that's the language that's being used here in this portion that we looked at tonight. And if you split them, then you are no longer talking about the teleos, that maturity, that completeness in Jesus, that Christ desires for each and every one of us. You see, God always accepts us right where we are, amen? But he's not content to leave us there. And he has greater plans for us going forward. And that's actually the problem that John is directly addressing here. Some of you say you know Jesus, but you don't love. You are a liar, is what the text tells us tonight. You talk about beliefs and walking with God, but you don't love. You're lying. That's not the truth. The truth is when the two come together, right belief, right action, and when that happens, the love of Christ is made complete teleos in you. And so when we talk about something like this, all sorts of questions can come to mind as you sit here listening. When we talk about a teaching this direct, some people may have some questions. And one of the biggest questions that some immediately have when hearing a teaching like this is this. I thought salvation was by faith and not by works. Isn't salvation by faith alone? Well, let's look at that. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 to 10 says this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. I'm going to stop there before I finish reading, okay? But there's the answer. It's by grace you've been saved. And this is through faith. It's not because of anything you've done. It's not by any works. It's not by anything you can contribute to it. It is a gift of God. And we accept it freely. How many of you amen me on that, right? Let's read the second part though. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. And so there seems to be a yes going on here, a both going on here. There's this tension that, yes, we are saved by faith alone. We can do nothing to earn this. There's no works we can do to ever make this happen. And at the same time, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God actually prepared in advance for us to do. And so when we come to know Jesus, when we meet Jesus and we experience his grace and salvation, the scripture seems to suggest that the next step is that we start living out the purposes that God has always had planned for us, has always had in mind for us to do. He's prepared in advance, if I can say it like that, that we should walk in them as the scriptures say. 
And some of us can read 1 John chapter 2 and um, we can think, well, then now what? I need to try harder to make my actions align with Jesus' word. I need to put more effort in. I need to, you know, get my, you know, pull my socks up and just start doing better. Yes, but that won't necessarily happen in your own strength and in your best efforts. It will happen as you stay connected to Jesus in relationship, abiding in him, walking with him, finding your rest in him. You see, that's the thing about love. Here's the crazy thing about love is that love compels us to respond. Love in all situations compels us to respond. In verse 3, the order in which this verse is written is important, and we need to pay attention to it if we're going to understand it properly. This does not say, if you keep my commands, I will love you. It doesn't say that. Some of us probably grew up like that, though. Some of us might have experienced that, perhaps with our parents, perhaps we experienced it in our churches, that I am only accepted if I do certain things. If we say God is love, and then he says, I only love you if you do certain things, the idea that God is love, if that's the case, that would just ring hollow for you, wouldn't it? I mean, if God only loves me because I do certain things, doesn't that really just characterize the vast majority of earthly relationships? What's divine about that? If that's the case, then that's just a transaction relationship, not an interaction between two people. But God, throughout Scripture, never gives us that idea and says things like, I loved you even before you ever loved me. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it's not on the screen, don't worry, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. You see, if coming to church is hard for you and you think, well, my life's really messy, then I want you to hear today that Christ died for you because of the mess of your life. And you need to know that the mess of your life doesn't surprise Jesus for one second. And I'm not saying that this only counts if you're outwardly a mess. Because most of us know that most of us actually wear our wounds on the inside, don't we? And we cover them up pretty good at times. And we clean up the outside. And most of us tonight would be like, please don't look inside my car tonight, right? Most of us might think things like that. We might have driven through a, you know, a drive-through car wash on the way to church, but please don't look on the inside, okay? Whole different story going on in there. If you know what I'm talking about, you could chuckle with me, okay? But, but, oh, thanks, Ethan. But this is true, I think, in life in general, that if we look around, we can make it look like we have it all together. We can put on a good show. We can put on a display for people to see, but we know our own hearts, don't we? We know the pride we carry. We know the hate sometimes that can harbor there. We know greed and envy and sometimes jealousy that is there, right? We can see it. And even more than us seeing it, Jesus knows it. And no matter what you look like on the outside, pretty, clean, put together, no matter what you look like on the outside, Jesus still sees the messiness in our hearts. And you know what he says? He says, I died for that. 
He says, I died for that. I knew that messiness was there. I knew that you were going to continue to be messy. But still, I still gave myself for you. I still love you. This is the love that God offers us. This is the love that God has towards us. And so how do we respond to this kind of love? I think we respond kind of similar to like Jean Valjean did. We respond with love. And in this case, we turn to Jesus and we enter into relationship with him. And as we do that, things start to change. Let me ask you a question tonight. Have you ever been madly in love with someone? You don't have to answer out loud. But if you have, and you've experienced that, you notice that, you'll notice that it kind of changes how you act towards them. <laughs> how you think about them, how you desire to please them. And it's not so much that you're always dragging your feet like, oh, I got to do this for them. Oh, I got to do this for her. Oh, why did I get myself into this time, right? That's not really how it is, but there's love, there's passion, and you love the person, and you want to please them, and you want to do good things for them, and you want to serve them. And the motivation has completely shifted from like this law relationship to relationship of love. And when you experience love like that, I believe with all my heart it starts to change you. In John chapter 14 and verse 15, Jesus said this. He said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Now there are a few ways, I think, that we can interpret this statement. One way is if you see life perhaps as a bunch of law and rules, if you feel that following God is simply a bunch of things you can or cannot do, then you can actually read this verse and you can actually interpret it this way. I am going to prove my love to God by obeying his commandments. And that can become your motivation. It's, you, you can interpret it as if Jesus is saying, you will prove your love for me by obeying my commandments. On the other hand, if you see life or your walk with God in terms of relationship, in terms of grace, then you read this verse and you probably hear something more like this. Fall deeper in love with me. Enter into relationship. Fall in love with me and you will naturally start to obey my commandments. Because love compels us to respond. Amen? It compels us to respond. Love can do something in our hearts that the law never could. Amen? Love has the power to change you in, you know, in such a way that the law never could. And I'm going to talk about this for a second. You see, the 613 Old Testament laws could not change our hearts. Okay? Our actions may be for a moment. Our works perhaps, but our hearts not so much. Because often when we obey that way, we obey more out of fear and duty than anything else. But in relationship, falling in love with someone, in this case, has the power to change your life, change your priorities, change how you see things, change what you make time for, change what you give your best to, not because you have to, not because you're forced to, but because you want to. And you respond to love with 
love. You've been smitten by love. And you naturally want to please the one that you love. And our motivation changes. You go from, I'm doing these things because of duty, to all of a sudden, no, I'm doing these things because I love them. And it, doesn't, it goes from duty to delight. You want to serve God. You want to please. You want to keep his commandments. Are you, are you kind of following with where I'm going here tonight? Let me illustrate this with the speed limit. I think this will be a fun one for us, okay? When you see the speed limit clearly posted on a highway, what is your goal? <laughs> I'm going to get the real truth out of you tonight, okay? I don't know about you, or if you're anything like me, but the way I approach the speed limit is not how close can I get to the limit so that I make sure I don't go over, right? The way I approach the speed limit sometimes is how far over the limit can I go before I get a ticket or get in trouble from the law, exactly. <laughs> anyone else? Anyone? Anyone? Oh, come on. Anyone? Come on. Anyone? Okay, I was kidding. I never do that, you guys, but thanks for stepping out like that tonight, okay, and taking the hit there from me. I'm joking. I'm joking, okay? I, I do this all the time, probably. But the law always tempts us with what we can call a loophole mentality. And what's the loophole in this case? Well, how can I go faster with not actually getting in trouble? And when I used to drive alone, I used to challenge these limits a little, if I could say it like that, okay? And when my wife... My girlfriend at the time, Nicole, joined me in the car. I smartened up a little bit, okay? But then I realized that she actually drives faster than I do, okay? So I really didn't have to do much differently when I drove with Nicole. But something shifted just over five years ago when my first baby girl was born. Something changed. And I can still remember that first time I drove her home from the hospital. Anyone seen this commercial before? This is a Mazda commercial for the CX-5, one of their vehicles. And it's a commercial that's depicting parents driving their baby home for the first time. And the commercial shows a dad driving his family home for the first time. And as he gets faster, he ponders, I wonder if I'm going too fast. And I wonder if I should slow down. And I wonder if I should just pull over for a moment. And shoulder checking is like as automatic as it has ever been, right, in this scene. And he's not glancing at anything but the road. He's, he's, he's fully in tune. He's not playing with the dial, right? He's not being distracted in any way. And I can relate to this exact moment when we drove Zara home for the first time. Because I remember feeling this way. I remember being a new dad and thinking, holy smokes, like my baby's in the back seat right now, right? And suddenly this commercial made more sense to me. And suddenly the rules made a little more sense to me, okay? And something had changed when the baby girl who I love enters the picture. All of a sudden, a protective nature started to take over, okay? And it's not about how fast I can go and not get in trouble, but more about how I can keep everyone safe now by obeying the laws of the road. And I tell you, the difference is not that the law or the rules of the road start to have an effect on me, and that I got sentimental about them, or that they changed me, or that they started to make more sense to me, but having a new passenger in the vehicle did. And when love enters the picture, everything changes. Are you with me? 
when that little girl was in the back seat, all of a sudden I started thinking differently because love entered the picture. For the first time in my life, my mind was focused more on how fast I should go as opposed to how fast I could go. It was love that brought those thoughts, friends. Not law, but love. And I don't want to be completely down on speed limits, okay? Hear me out. They're there for a reason. Don't get me wrong. But it wasn't a sudden revelation that changed my behavior on the road. It was love. It was my daughter joining me in the vehicle. And the lesson here that I believe is that love just has this ability to refocus us, doesn't it? Love can refocus us. You see, love gets you thinking in ways that the law never can. Law can never accomplish in our hearts what the love of God can do for our hearts. And Jesus has not come simply to give us a new law, but he wants us to experience him, his love in relationship. You see, love is the motivating factor that will sustain us, church. Love will do for us what the law can never do. And the love of God that we experience, that we experience in Jesus, I just think it refocuses us and it brings fresh perspective to how we live. You see, the gospel church is always more like marriage and less like a formula, okay? Sometimes we're guilty of making it like a formula. Like, you get this right, okay? I'm here now, okay? Yeah, I said the prayer, yeah, I did that, right? And we could turn it into a formula when really I think love has always been, sorry, the gospel has always been more like marriage, that the idea here is that we fall in love with Jesus, that we come to know him in relationship you see, the gospel isn't just that you get the formula right and say a prayer and make a transaction. That's part of it. The gospel isn't just that you got the head knowledge right. But the gospel is that you enter into the relationship that will transform how you live from here on out. Because once you experience the love and forgiveness, once you experience the grace, once you experience the generosity of Jesus, everything changes. Amen? Everything changes. Just like it changed for Jean Valjean when he experienced excessive forgiveness, when he experienced excessive generosity, when he didn't deserve it. Everything changes. You see, nothing can shift our behavior like encountering the love of God can. And so you read something like verse 3, like we just did. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. And many think, well, ugh. I really need to start trying harder. I need to put more effort in. I need to start proving who I am here. And in some ways, maybe we do need to put more effort in. But I tell you, it's probably not the effort that you're thinking. I tell you, the secret to walking with Jesus and knowing him is just that, is that you make it your aim to get to know him in relationship. And you seek him. And you look to him for help. And you ask him to be your strength. And you recognize that you might not be able to do this on your own, but in him, much can happen. And maybe the best way to teach tonight, or to teach this tonight, is not to get here, and I hope you don't leave here with this necessarily as a goal, is not to get you to leave here determined to do more works or more good deeds, but rather just encouraging you to just encounter the Son of God in a fresh way tonight. Begin to encounter and spend time with Jesus daily. 
Begin to seek him. Begin to bring your mess to him. Begin to bring your successes to him. Begin to bring your struggles to him. And watch how that changes you. And watch how falling more and more in love with Jesus changes your actions and how you live. You see, in John 15, Jesus said this. He said, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, though, you can do nothing. And so the way we bear fruit and obey his commandments and walk with him, I don't think it starts with our best efforts or what we can muster up on our own strength. But I think it starts by remaining in him, abiding in him, being connected to him, living our lives in him, connected to Jesus. Soak in the love of God, church. Bask in his goodness and his grace and his mercy and the sacrifice that he's made for you. And when we start to see these things, I think our allegiances begin to change. And our responsiveness to his commands can become delight instead of duty. Because we're responding to love. Responding to love. Not a taskmaster. Not a drill sergeant. But we're responding to love. And what's this love like? Well, it's a, it's, it's a love that's given to us freely. And it's a love that calls us to obey his commands, that we love him and that we love one another. Not obedience to earn something, but obedience simply because we have experienced the overwhelming love of God and it's done something in us. And so that's where I want to leave us tonight. <laughs> I'm going to pray. And in a moment, Pastor John's going to come up and just uh, lead us for the rest of the service. But I'm going to pray, and eventually we're going to respond in worship. But I believe that the secret to being more like Jesus is actually to abide in Jesus. It's to spend time with him. Perhaps tonight it's to worship him. Perhaps it's reading and treasuring his word. Perhaps tonight it's seeking him first and bringing whatever we need to bring before him so that he can do a work that we can't do. Are you with me? And so we're going to take some time to do that tonight. Because I believe this. I believe that the more we fall in love with Jesus, the more... We will obey his commands. And this is grace, not religion. This is love, not law. This is delight, not simply duty. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your word, God, and for your power, Lord, to transform us. I thank you, Lord, for how you've loved each and every one of us, despite all the things we've done, despite, Lord God, the mess of our lives, despite the things, Lord God, that we know, God, that we need to stray from. Lord, you still love us. Thank you that you're patient with us, Jesus. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. I pray tonight, Lord God, that you would just even make that known to us greater in our hearts, God, how much you love us. Reveal your love to us afresh, God. Help us to re-experience it, Lord. Perhaps for those of us who just haven't spoken to you in a while, perhaps tonight's a time we can speak to you. For those of us, Lord God, who, who may, might even be running, Lord, would you call us back tonight, I pray. But God, thank you for loving us. Thank you, God. Be with us for the rest of this evening. As we look to you, Lord God, we know you have the power to change us. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.